Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Podside. I am here with Carlo, of course. Uh, welcome back, Carlo, as well. How are you doing, man? I'm doing all right. How about you? Uh, good, good. And uh, we have a special guest with us, a, uh, a prolific short story writer who is also the uh, uh, mind behind, uh, force behind, I don't even know how you say it, a recent anthology called Weird War 3, and that is Sean... Uh, Sean, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, uh, Carlo and Pete? Good, and I sh- probably should have used your full name because it's like there's one Sean on the planet. <laughs> so it's a long day. Uh, Sean Patrick Hazlitt, everybody. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, guys. All right. Um, so uh, we're, we're going to be dec- discussing a um, a period piece, right? Oh, this is the communication thing. Okay, I, I will be the horse whisperer, guys. So, um, uh, Carlo characterized this as a, a period piece, Sean. It, is that accurate, do you think? Uh, could you talk through what this is? Um, yeah, I, I've Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for the most part, it is a period piece, though there are some stories that are exceptions to it. But the conceit behind the anthology was to revisit the the Cold War and imagine or reimagine what it would have been like if it had turned hot. And that ranges from, you know, all across the conflicts, the spectrum from kind of low grade insurgency, counterinsurgency, all the way up to the existential annihilation from a nuclear war. And, you know, the, the stories all kind of cover, you know, along that conflict spectrum. In addition to that, I also wanted to have one weird element to it, um, be it you know kind of the fantastical weird side or or something along science fiction, you know, the science fiction realm, because we have plenty of hard science fiction authors in it, like uh, Martin Shoemaker um, as an example, uh, to to more kind of the weird side, uh, you know, or, or kind of um, with you know verge of Lovecraftian cosmic horror. And I think John Langan's piece kind of verges on both the science fictional side, but also melds melds that cosmic horror in his last piece, which is called Second Front. Um, the, th- the easiest way to think about it is it is, uh, you know, think H.P. Uh, Lovecraft meets Tom Clancy, and that'll give you a good feel for it. Now, when I'm talking to like a more, you know, a, a, a broader audience, right, I usually say Stephen King meets t- Tom Clancy, but I think your audience is a little bit more. Um, able to appreciate the nuance um, of that, you know, kind of description. No, that no, that makes a ton of sense. I, it's oh, the the dynamic of the show is like Carlo is a writer, so he's really in the life of all this and understands the nuts and bolts. And I'm just a super fan who buys a lot of books and gets into it. 
like, how do you go about doing this? Like, I, I could see where you could come up with the idea to come up to have an anthology, but like going from idea at bar to finished product on shelves seems like a Herculean task. Like, what? how did this happen? So I, I actually find producing a, a, an anthology to be far easier than actually writing a, a good story. I, and in fact, I, I think it, it it takes less time too. But that's that's part of part of what my training has been, and 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 you know a lot of part of it has just been life experience. So you know, I was my first kind of uh, real you know I would say say real job. My first job out of the gate was a a software engineer. But uh, you know, I, you know, immediately after that, uh, you know, I was a I was an army officer. And you know, you learn to manage large teams and and projects and and get things done, and then. Um, you know, in the finance world where I currently work, you have to operationalize ideas of what people have and and be able to to manage them to reality. So that skill set really helped me in managing this project. And in terms of kind of more the nuts and bolts and getting into the specifics, the first thing starts out is you just write a proposal, um, you know, to and then target a number of publishers that you'd like to do the anthology for. And, you know, the, the, the task of doing that is, um, you know, it's a hard one, especially if you were, uh, and by, by hard, I don't mean the, the, the act of actually doing it and putting it together, the act of getting it approved or the, or the, you know, the, the uncertainty and the, and the luck in terms of getting it approved. So, you know, you have to have some credibility in doing it, especially if you've never been an editor before. So, you know, the way that you work around it is the anthology idea that you propose should be something that you're the only person in the world who can credibly do it. And the reason this anthology is, you know, I, I would say is is so different than anything you've ever seen, but also, you know, it's also very specific to what my background has been. So when I, you know, first, you know, my second job out of the, you know, out of the gate, because, you know, I had a basically a five month delay where I could work and play around as an engineer before I, I went and served my time in the, the military was a military officer, but it was also a very specific experience. I was stationed out in the Mojave desert in a place called Fort Irwin, the army's national training center. And it was, you know, when I went there, it was kind of 1998. It was the tail end of the cold war. So we were still training us units to recognize and fight units that, that were legacy kind of Warsaw Pact units that used Soviet um, doctrine and, and armored tactics. So I eff- effectively did or played what was co- you know called the Op Four, the opposing forces, which is a red team. And you know we maneuvered you know hundreds of tanks in the deserts, uh, you know the desert, the Mojave Desert, um, in an area the size of the state of Rhode Island. And there's another uh, oblique reference to H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know it's a thousand square miles. And, you know, I became an expert in Soviet armored doctrine and tactics. So I have a very close connection to, to what they did. Um, so much so, actually, that, uh, you know, it actually came in handy for classmates who, you know, were in former Soviet countries that had subsequently been inv- invaded by Russia. I could basically tell them how to get their families out of the country, um, you know, where the Russians were going to go, how they were going to operate, what targets they were going to seize. So, you know, that's 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 part one of my background. It, you know, the, on the on the Tom Clancy side, I kind of had it nailed. Sure. In in terms of the you know the speculative fictions side, you know, I've 
I've written and, you know, or not written, but I've published, um, you know, more than 40 short stories, some at, um, you know, you know, professional paying publications and others at, you know, semi-pro, but I've been fairly prolific. Um, and I've also, um, written predominantly, and I've written across all sorts of, uh, types of speculative fiction, but I've predominantly been most successful with my horror fiction and my military science fiction. So, you know, again, those two gave me some credibility in terms of you know, in putting it out. And I've also appeared in one of Bain's prior anthologies, which was, the uh, you know, best of, uh, you know, one of their best of military science fiction anthologies for a piece I wrote for Terraform. And I'm continuing to write. There's another anthology that I've been invited to submit to. No guarantees I'll be published in it, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a robotics and artificial intelligence kind of you know, the future of military um, robotics and artificial intelligence anthology that Stephen Lawson, also one of the uh, writers in Weird World War III, um, you know, is is going to edit for Bain. So, you know, there's there's a little bit. And the other thing, too, is, um, uh, you know, I, I said two elements, but the, the third element is you really have to, you know, when you propose something for a particular publisher, it really should be, um, you know, in line with their with their brand. So this wasn't the first anthology I proposed to Bain. It was the second, but I still think that's pretty good. Um, and that's one piece of advice that uh, Mike Resnick gave me, you know, before he died, um, when I'd asked him to participate in the prior anthology, which was the the future of capitalism, um, which I pitched to Bain. And and it's not really it's not really like something that you know would you know I I think would necessarily you know in hindsight after having proposed it and not having it go through. It's not something in hindsight that Bain's core audience, I think, would rally around. This idea is. Um, yeah. And, and in, you know, in addition to that, I think it also has elements that resonate with, um, you know, an audience outside of Bain's, um, you know, typical audience, um, which is why I invited people like Nick Mamatas and and um, John Langan and Erica Satifka. Um, and, you know, Erica Satifka, as an example, her particular story has probably, you know, if I'm, again, I'm a business guy and I look at reviews and I take them seriously, but in terms of positive mentions and things like that, I think, I think her story has probably done or had the most positive response to it in, in reviews and, and, you know, things like that. So, uh, and the other thing too, is the stories, given the topic is, is so specific um, I think it's surprising that many of the stories came out the way that they did. They're all very different, which I think is um, some, something I think, uh, you know, I like to think I did well. I'll, I'll kind of have to let the readers determine that because they matter more than what my opinion is, because you know, <laughs> my opinion doesn't matter if the thing doesn't sell. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really proud of, of what I put together in my first um, you know, inaugural, inaugural attempt at, at coming, with a, coming out with an anthology. Yeah, it's um, it's we sort of inadvertently developed a relationship to this uh, anthology because uh, you know we we've been we've been interviewing another author uh, a number of authors and two authors in a row that we encountered had stories within this anthology so I mean it's it does sort of feel like fate that we're now having a conversation about it. Well, and I think that's how it came about. I think Kevin Andrew Murphy uh, reached out to me and said, "Hey, I appeared on this podcast, and I was the second person they spoke to." And they said, "Well, you we probably should get the uh, the editor on to talk a little bit more about it." And and I would actually encourage you to also talk to or invite 
some of the other authors once you um, you know have a chance to get through all the stories and find some that you really resonated with. I mean, there's some like T.C. McCarthy's story is you know it's it's all at once creative, bizarre, and hilarious. Um, at, at all, you know, all and you know, all of the above. So, you know, definitely um, would encourage you to do that. The other thing too is I, I, you know, I'm thinking back to my last question. I talked a lot, but I didn't entirely 100% answer Carlo's question. Um, so, you know, without going into too much detail, that's that's that that's that's how it started, right? In order to kind of you know get, you know, get that in order to get an acceptance or or get a publisher interested in the anthology, then you have to run through the whole project management issue um you know issue but uh component um what i would encourage writers to do is i actually wrote a very detailed after action review of this process on my website um seanpatrickhazlett.com which goes into everything anybody who wants to uh, produce an anthology would want to go through but from the the viewpoint of somebody doing it for the first time so there are certain uh you know things that are that are always the you know, always the same um you, you know, like, uh, well, I shouldn't say always the same, but, um, you have to build in padding because 50% of your, you know, 40 to 50% of your writers are always going to miss their deadline. You just have to plan for it. You got to build it into your, into your deadline. And you also have to be prepared for life to happen. Um, you know, there's one author, I'm not going to mention his name. Um, you know, because I, you know, I want to, because I, I'm hoping he's going to appear in the next anthology, but, you know, he, he, he was slotted to send in a story for this particular anthology and then his father died, uh, you know, kind of, you know, a week or so before it was due. And, you know, what do you, as an editor, you, you know, you can say like, I don't care if your father died, you have a deadline, meet the deadline, <laughs> damn it. Like you can't, you, know, you can't do that stuff. You ha- so you have to have contingency plans and you have to have a, a slate of writers that you can, you can reach out to and, and rely on in a pinch. Um, another another great story in the anthology, um, Shadow Rook One or, Sha- or Sha- Shadow Rook. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm not misremembering the, the title right now, but um, by Brian Trent. Brian wasn't invited at the very beginning. He he kind of came in as a as a relief like a relief pitcher, and he did it one of the, you know he did an amazing job. The story is his story is the second story in the anthology for a reason. But he produced it relatively quickly. So you have to be prepared for those contingencies, but you also have to build in enough time so that if you recruit a new writer, you got to give them at least a month to put something together. And even that's kind of tight. So uh, anyway, there's and then, you know, after you kind of go through the process, right, so you solicit writers and you should you need to solicit writers before you submit the pitch, because, you know, as a as a novice uh, editor you know, the, the publisher is not going to buy it because of you. The publisher is going to buy it primarily because of the names that you're able to attract and put in that anthology and getting David Drake, um, into that anthology is, um, you know, is also something that was instrumental in, in, in selling it. And the way that I did that is he served in the same military unit I did by, you know, 30, 30 years apart. He was also, also in the 11th armored cavalry regiment. So I mentioned that. Um, and then he, it also gave him a chance to revisit, and make sense of his time when he was over in in Vietnam. So, you know, there are other things like that that will dramatically increase your your chances of acceptance. Um, in terms of managing the process, you got to give writers enough time. You have to. Um, one thing that I do at the very beginning is ask each writer for a one to three sentence logline of what their story is going to be about. Because the last thing you want to do is at the very end of the process, 
um, you know, have somebody, you know, have 20 people turn in werewolf stories, right? You're screwed. <laughs> You're done. Like, you, right. so you have to anticipate what a lot of these, you know, what a lot of the potential issues could be. But, um, you know, and then once you do that, you get the stories. I, I typically edit them right away. Um, if I think, you know, the story has an 80% plus chance of, of making the anthology just so that I buy time at the end. So there's not a crunch. So if people turn things in early, I, you know, I love those people because, um, and I shouldn't be saying this, but frankly, they're going to have a higher probability of getting into the anthology because, you know, there's, there's still plenty of room and, and, you know, I start putting together the anthology right away. The other thing I do is I keep a spreadsheet that, um, you know, with those log lines and by author and, you know, I, I try to mix the length of the stories. You don't want to have three extremely long stories at the very beginning because people are just, you know, you're going to tire people out, but you want to have something that catches their attention in the beginning, but it's a reasonable length. And then you want to vary, um, you know, length, you want to vary theme. Um, this is more of a military science fiction anthology. So I would even vary the branch, right? I wouldn't want to have military. You know, I wouldn't want to have army, 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 and then seven naval stories, et cetera. So, you know, there's a way that you um, categorize the stories before you start putting everything together. Um, and then once, once you put everything together, then you send the, the anthology to the editor. Um, you know, they'll come back with um, copy edits. Uh, I, I've been told that sometimes they'll remove, ask you to remove stories. That didn't happen to me my first time. But um, the reason I mentioned that is until the publisher accepts the manuscript, do not send people contracts and do not pay them until they formally approve it. And then the instant they formally approve it, then that's when you can start paying people. Now, there are exceptions to that. Um, you know, Sometimes there's an emergency. Sometimes somebody loses a job and you want to be a good human being. And, but you have to be willing to float that money, right? It, there might be a, a, you know, an unlikely scenario where they're rejected from the anthology and you're kind of at a loss. So you know, once you go through that process, then um, copy edits go through and then you have to start gearing up on the marketing, um, which, you know, as a, as a new editor, you know, if you're relatively, you know, you're unknown, completely unknown as an editor, you have to really ramp that up. And you use your networks. So at work, I had a communications guy had access to all these, um, you know, uh, email addresses and and information for major media outlets. So I sent out, uh, you know, kind of did a mail merge, sent out 132 queries about the anthology, and uh, I only got one response saying that uh, you know we only we only uh, look at stories of this particular type. So not a single one wanted to talk to me. Um, but then you use other contacts and, and slowly you find ways to, to get out there. And I would say my biggest success that far was getting on this show called coast to coast AM and the angle that I used to get on that. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Um, but it's a, it's, 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 yeah, it's the most, um, it's the most listened to radio show in the world. Well, we're sorry. I shouldn't say that the most listened to evening, <laughs> like night out. <laughs> radio show in the world. It's got two, you know a weekly audience of 2.75 million people or thereabouts. And the angle I used to get that is there was a lot of, there are a lot of, um, you know, in, in the cold war, there are some stories that are actually fairly, you know, stranger than fiction, right? So there's this whole remote viewing program that the CIA and the, the, the army and the, the defense department 
um, engaged in over you know more than twenty you know over more than a twenty year period, and you know there, there were a lot of successes and stuff like that. And it's all been you know or not all, but much of it has been declassified on the CIA website. So you know I could talk credibly about that. I could say, look, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's on the CIA website. There's declassified documents. You could check it out there, right? So that. Yeah, and then I would go through a number of podcasts and talk to anybody that wanted to talk to. And then, if you do well on a particular show, uh, you know some of these folks, you know, sit in on larger shows like like Coast to Coast AM, and that's how I got on. So anyway, the the promotion piece is also extremely important. And and this year it couldn't have been stranger, right? So the two yeah. largest printers in the U.S. Uh, one of them is going through bankruptcy proceedings. Um, at the same time we had COVID, so no one's going to bookstores or, or, you know, the foot traffic at bookstores, the aspect of discovery, which is extremely important for an unknown editor or author is critical for their first book launch. It, that's virtually non-existent. Um, you can't do signings. Um, I had a whole marketing plan for signings because unlike a traditional book, you know, I have 21 authors. Um, that could show up in 21 different or you know 20 cities and sell five books a city. There's a, you know there's a hundred books right there, right? So um, I, w- I was unable to do that. So you have to find ways around that because you're not going to sell as many books in bookstores as you would otherwise. So you know for uh, the, the moment the book appeared on Amazon, I started reaching out to friends and asking them to buy the book. And so the marketing aspect is something that you should not. Um, underestimate. It's probably, for me, I would say it's seventy-five percent of getting this thing off. You know, get, getting this thing to work and getting this thing to sell. And it, you know, it's, it takes time. Um, I was hoping. You know, I thought the timing for the launch was was otherwise perfect. Right? We're talking about Russians and weird World War Three uh, in Halloween, right before one of the most contentious U.S. U.S. elections in history, where there's you know rumors of collusion, Russian collusion, etc. So the timing was was perfect, but there you know there are other aspects. You have COVID, people not in stores, and even with other book launches, most book launches or many book launches were pushed to the fall at the same time. So there's also a glut of books, et cetera. So um, you have to be willing to roll with you know a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unexpected things in your plan. Anyway, Carlo, my apologies for for, for taking that question and and turning it into a, a you know a, a twenty minute. Uh, monologue but um no, no that's it's all good no we're, we're uh i mean a big part of this is is making sure you have a forum so the the idea that you take one of our questions and and run away with it is fantastic well um, there's also there's also another question that you know that i think carlo asked that that i didn't even get a t- time to address about erica Satifka's story sure um so uh, you know I, I don't i can't speak for her if it's based on any, any operational risks that she researched or anything like that. However, um, there, there's certainly been um, recent, recent stories um, that, that do show operational risks with GPS. So there was a, uh, and I, I, I think this is maybe three to three, four years ago, there was a um, exercise app, like a running app that would track what, what your, uh, you know, where your workouts took you, like your, your, your running, uh, uh, your running, you know, your, your exercise sessions, your running sessions, et cetera, PT, you know, physical training sessions 
and and what was happening is is this information would be uploaded to the company's website. So they were seeing um, you know these these paths being constructed in places like uh, I'm, I'm making up these countries, but you know they, but, you know countries in Central Asia like Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan, et cetera, which were U.S. military bases. Right, so these you know, knuckleheads, uh, you know, and and I would I would expect folks in special forces to be a cut above and, and much more intelligent, but you know you might have some uh, you know some some guy supporting them, et cetera, just stupidly uploading this, and that's a huge operational risk because it's it's letting it's letting your adversaries know exactly where you have forces deployed around the world. And they might not even be U.S. military installations; they could be a uh, you know an allied military installation that 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 does not want want the world to know that the US military is operating in their country. So absolutely that's that's an operational risk. Um in terms of kind of an accidental uh nuclear launch, I, I think it's a little tougher because of the way that uh, you know the the um in fact my advisor at the Kennedy School wrote a book on it in terms of um maintaining the chain of custody with nuclear weapons and and having multiple people be involved before their, you know, before a launch was possible. And it's something that's widely shared, um, you know, throughout, uh, you know, circles that, that, you know, operate and control nuclear weapons. So, I, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I would say it's, it's not as easy to do as, as the kind of the, the story presents itself to be, but I would not, I would never say something's, uh, you know, completely impossible right um and i think the more that you digitize things and the more that you know anything that that does not have an air gap between you know the the you know, the the network you know, the network that it operates on and the internet is at risk so power grids um at risk and and by the way it's not you know it's not just our adversaries that do this um you know we we also have you know we also exploit zero day vulnerabilities of of our adversaries, and by zero day, it's something that's never been done before, until it's done, right? And then once you expose a zero day vulnerability, then you can patch it, etc. So um, they're absolutely based on operational risks um, that that apps using GPS have. I mean, it's not even just apps using GPS; it's also just you know anybody walking around with an iPhone. You know, it can be you know if somebody really wants to track you, they can they can find a way to track you. Well, that sounds great. I mean. Have- not great, but <laughs> that's a great answer to a to a somewhat uh, complicated question. Yeah. So, um, having having gone through uh, the Weird War Three, uh, Weird World War Three, I'm always going to leave the one word off if I am not careful. Um, I'm I'm noticing uh, a theme both in your anthology. And in your writing history of um, a very military bent in your uh, in 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 story choices and directions, are you? Uh, I'm assuming then you have a military background, and how much of that is your? Actually, I know you did because you made the David Drake reference, but uh, how much of that is um, this is my area of expertise versus this is my area of interest? Um, I would say there's actually three things, right? There's area of expertise, there's area of interest, and there's also what sells. Okay. Yeah, fair. Very so, fair. So I've written 
60, 60 odd uh, short stories. I've sold about 44 of them. Um, the ones that tend to sell are the, the horror and the, and the uh, military science fiction. So that's, um, that's part of it. You're going to see survivorship bias in, in what, what uh, people choose to buy from me. Sure. In fact, in fact, there was one story that started out as a, it was actually a corporate assignment from a, a company that looked at futures uh, for NATO. And it just was looking at the future of um, military technology. And, you know, I got the rights back to it. Uh, so I just submitted it and it sold to Terraform relatively quickly. And I just thought, really? That's all? But, but this other stuff didn't? I, I don't. So, so that's, that's definitely part of it. I certainly have an interest in it, um, you know, because it's, you know, there's, there's more, there's more action in these things. And I, and, and I think I can also, uh, you know, having had the expertise, it just makes it easier to write these stories, like having a conversation over a radio using call signs and things like that comes natural to me because I did it for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, the, it's just, it, 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 they're quicker to write and they're easier to write, but I don't, I like to, you know, to, to vary my, you know, kind of what, what my fiction seems like the other, the other thing that, you know, I, I've only written once, um, that also I think did reasonably well is corporate cosmic horror, um, which, you know, as, as, as you guys probably know, Thomas Ligotti did a bit of, and, and is, you know, someone who, I would say again, I haven't studied it deeply, but I would say he was probably the one of the earlier uh, folks to to bring it up, if not if not like the godfather of it, right? So I wrote a corporate cosmic horror story for Vastarian, and it sold. Um, you know, it sold relatively quickly, and so that could be. You know, when I when I'm in a genre, and I'll grant it's one data point, but if you know the data point is 100 percent success successful, you know I, I'm probably going to write a few more stories like that and see how they do. Uh, so you know, a lot of it's also just um, I, I first write something that I'd like to read, that I have interest in, and then like the Soviet military, right? I I flood the gaps, and the gap that that opens up into the into the uh, you know the into the in the into the U.S. ranks is where I'm going to flood all the uh, all my effort, right? So that's that's kind of how I approach the stories that I choose to to write and and, and sell. Oh, that's great! It's it's a uh, um, we probably spend about three fourths of our time dealing with uh, individual authors and, and talking about what they're doing um, with maybe a side of watching movies and having fun with them. But we do, we do talk to a fair number of, of editors and publishers and agents. And one of the things that does come up again and again is um, as a result of, well, just, that there's been an absolute sea change in publishing over the past 10, 15 years, that what, what makes the difference is the willingness to, um, I don't know how to put it, scratch for your own worms. Like if you're, if you're willing to go out and to adapt to the market, if you're willing to be your own, um, your own publicist, if you're, if you're willing to 
generate events for your own work. And like all of these things that we've been hearing again and again sounds like sort of the the diagram of what you're trying to do with this anthology. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you have a finance background. Are you are you just a a a guy who sort of naturally markets or have you have you been like doing a market survey on how to get a sci-fi book published like how did this evolve well so so the other piece of my background it's gonna you know so i i also have uh an mba right sure so so you know i i've been formally trained in how to you know do a lot of these things um and it's also it's it's mostly uh, you know, you don't need an MBA to do it. You just need you just need to to want to win, and you just got to do what you need to do to to move sales. At the end of the day, look, I'm a finance guy, right? And I I look at numbers, and if the numbers aren't doing well, I run experiments, and I try to find ways to you know to 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 move those numbers. So, you know, as an example, there are three things I did um, from a marketing perspective that that uh, you know, and the other thing too is you're not. The numbers are also hard to get and hard to see, and they're not. They're not. And they're not typically accurate. So you're not looking at the kind of the you know. This is this is exactly how many I sold, um, but it's more did my rank change materially when I did this thing, and that's kind of all the data that you have to work with, right? You're not going to have perfect data, you know. As an example. So I ran, I, I did a signing event, you know, during a period of COVID, right? And, and, and I, I only did one and I was very careful. Um, and it was in an, an independent bookstore called Between Books that, uh, you know, I've known the owner for 30 some years. We did it outside, um, you know, wore masks, social distancing, et cetera. But in that event, we physically sold 41 copies of the book. Okay. And then this bookseller, you know, the, you know, my friend Greg Shower, um, who owns the who owns Between Books, he reported the data to to BookScan, which is the, you know, the official source of, of data used to, um, you know, determine whether or not you're on the New York Times, you know, that that and some secretive algorithm that, God knows what the New York Times does, right? But, um. If if you if that number is high, you will appear. I can you know you, you are guaranteed to appear in every other uh, bestseller list except the New York Times, right? Because the New York Times does something that's a little squishy. Um, now, when when that forty one books, you know, it's it's in a region. You can see where the region was. It never showed up in the numbers. It just it was as if we sold zero. So you know, you can't really rely too much on on book scan numbers, but you know, a good proxy you can use is, is Amazon rankings. So there were three events I did where those Amazon rankings spiked. Um, and it wasn't just what I did. It's what other, what other people did. So Sarah Hoyt posted on a, on a site called Instapundit, uh, you know, about a week after the book came out. Um, that website has, uh, I think, something like 1.8 million monthly views. My, my um, ratings spiked immediately. Um, and over the next, you know, two or three days, and it was the highest spike I had seen um, throughout the entire process. Just an appearance on one website. The second biggest spike I would say came when I, you know, near like kind of the first or second day. So part of it was just, you know, launch day and all the buzz around that. But also I did the big idea on uh, John Scalzi's website. 
So like that's, that's table stakes. You have to do that. Um, it, it gets a lot of attention for your book and sure. um, you know, I, I would do, I'm going to do it again if you know, I, I I'm able to do weird world war four. The third thing I did was um, you know, being appearing on coast to coast AM. And I think between p- appearing on the Skullsy site and appearing on that site is that the, the, the difference between the two is Skullsy site. The people who are frequenting that site are in the genre active buyers for the book uh, coast to coast am just has a massive audience and so you're going to get a lower percentage of buyers in that audience but but a low percentage of a massive number is still a big number that's that show that was that's sort of the uh uh well originally that show was art bell right we're talking right. about this yeah okay because yeah, yeah I, I, back in the days where where I was uh, just out of college and listening to people talk about their abductions, I totally listened to that show. It's got a huge audience. It did then, and it does now. Yep, two point seven five million weekly, you know, unique weekly listeners. Incredible. So, so and I and, and the other thing too is um, you should you should you know, I created my own personal blog site in August, right? Just in preparation for promoting this, this book. And, you know, I would say my best day prior to being on that show, because that's the other thing too. I use data and everything just to track how people are doing. I even have, um, you know, I had a, a, you know, a promotional period where every day the, um, you know, biography and then the, um, you know, answers to random questions to each of the authors mm-hmm. would appear on my on my blog site, just to gin up interest, et cetera. Um, and what, you know, the best day I had prior to being on coast to coast AM was like, you know, 86 views in one day, something like that. Something, you know, something fairly modest, sure. but you know, that, that was a good day. Right. And there's something, you know, it's a blog, you know, blogs, you know, site that I set up in August. Okay. So brand new website in the, 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 the moment that my, um, name appeared on the website with links on coast to coast AM. I think the first, the first day was like 500. The day that I appeared, it was over a thousand. And then, you know, it kind of started to ramp down. But what you see is like, uh, anybody who's familiar with, uh, uh, you know, math, you know, mathematics, advanced mathematics, it looked like it was like a Dirac, a, a Dirac Delta function where you just have this, like, you know, imagine you live in you live in a desert and there's no rain, and then you have a foot of rain in one day, right? It was like that, right? There's this massive spike, and it was yeah. completely attributable, entirely attributable to to coast to coast AM. So anyway, there's, you know, you just have to use data and uh, you know, be mindful of how you promote. Now look, the, the dream of you know the dream of any author should be to be on NPR's you know All Things Considered, right? Because that has a fifteen you know, we're close to you know fourteen to fifteen million weekly viewers, and you know you just get a small percentage of that. You're doing extremely well. Of course, you know when I tried and failed to get on that show, but it's you know it's understandable. It's a genre, it's a genre book from a unknown editor, et cetera, et cetera. So, anyway. Well, um, I guess the the two things I wanted to ask you here, uh, beyond what we've talked about already, is if we're having trouble reaching one of the authors in this uh, anthology, is it okay if we check in with you? Because we certainly 
we are we are intending to work our way through more. Like we've struck gold a couple of times now. Why wouldn't we? Right. Well, yeah, yeah. It would, it would, it would be, it would not be okay if you didn't reach out to me. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> no, no. no feel, I mean, feel, like obviously, you know, feel free to reach out on them on their own, right? I don't like have a monopoly on that, but I, I would. Anybody who appears in my anthologies, I want to actively promote not only their work in the anthology, but outside of the anthology. So to you know, to that point, right? Erica Certifica has busted synapses that came out. On November third, unfortunately, on you know, I think on election day, um, yeah. and 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 then uh, Nick Mamatas well, appropriately, if you think about it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then Nick Mamatas has a has a uh, anthology that he just put out, and Erica Satifka is in it. Um, it's called Wonder and Glory Forever, all inspiring Lovecraftian fiction. Um, in fact, I'm looking at my copy right now. I have to. It has some of my um, favorite. You know, it's a reprint anthology. But um, if if the stories that I recognize that I, I I've come to know and love, um, so there's a story by um, uh, Clark, you know, uh, Clark Ashton Smith that is my single favorite story by him. Um, it, it's called the City of the Singing Flame. If you know that is any indicator of the quality of the rest of the stories in it, um, high, and then obviously Shadow Over Innsmouth by H.P. Lovecraft. So if those two stories are indicative of what's in that anthology, um, I you know highly encourage people to get it. And then you have John Langan, who has uh, Children of the Fang out um, right now. You can also get the e-arc of, um, I think it's called Tiger, Tiger Bright um, by T.C. McCarthy. It's his second in the Tiger Burning series. Uh, so anyway... I, you know, I highly encourage the other authors to come on um, because they all are fascinating people with a lot of crazy stories to tell and happy to help you guys out. Oh, well, I mean, definitely works both ways. I guess um, I, I'll, I'll check in with Carlo, of, of course, too. But I guess the final thing I should be asking is if I'm listening to this and I want to buy the anthology or any of your other books, where should I go? So you can. You get the anthology um, on ebook or you know live the, the trade paperback on Amazon. Um, if you want to support independent bookstores, you can go to bookshop.com, you know Barnes and Noble, um, anywhere else books are sold, you can you can pretty much find it. Perfect. Okay, uh, Carlo, is there anything you'd like to add? No, I think I think uh, Sean's covered pretty much all the bases here. Uh, Sean, we really appreciate you having you on today, and uh, maybe maybe we can bother you when uh, World War Four comes around. I hope you bother me when World War Four comes around because I love talking well, about these books. If I'm not well, wrong, that one's end- supposed to be about sticks and stones. So, uh, not, well, not necessarily. I, I, if every author turns me turns in a story about sticks and stones, I've, I've failed. It, <laughs> okay, could be, <laughs> it could be about sticks and stones. Or it could be about the first inner, you know, inner, you know, inner solar, you know, first war of the inner solar system, right? Mm-hmm. It could be we fight World War Three against the Chinese, and then at the very end of it, Cthulhu emerges from his slumber and begins weird World War Four, right? There could be any number of ways you can go with the with the anthology, um, and I'm I'm excited to see what the authors come up with. If the, if that's you know that said, if I get the green light, I don't want to be sure. Dangerous. The, the musk the muskies versus the Bazonians. Perfect. <laughs> 
Okay, guys. Um, uh, Sean, thank you so much for coming on again. I uh, encourage everybody to uh, start mining the uh, the anthology like we have. You'll certainly be hearing from more of those authors. And uh, have a good evening, everybody.